Hello and welcome to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. We are Maddie, Freya, Caroline and Serena, four art historians who each week will be chatting to an expert about visual and material culture in the 18th and 19th centuries. Join us on an art historical journey as we think about how images and objects shaped our world. Hello, this episode we are talking about wood. So a few months ago, myself and Freya spoke with Elise Perry England, who is Associate Curator of American Decorative Arts at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Elise has done some brilliant work on Japan furniture made by American craftsmen. And together we discussed her wealth of curatorial expertise and knowledge and some absolutely fabulous wooden objects. But before we go into the interview, let's see what we know about wooden objects. Okay, so I am really excited for this episode. I'm kind of furniture mad, so I absolutely love wood in all of its forms, from carved pieces to intricate floral designs of marquetry panels found in 18th century furniture that are often likened to being like paintings in wood, to picture frames, to wooden tea boxes, caddies, everything. I actually once worked as an assistant in an antique furniture shop in London. Uh, and one of my favorite things while I was working there was trying to figure out what wood was what. So kind of how to differentiate between satin wood and tulip wood and walnut. Um, I don't think I was particularly uh, good at that, but I especially love opening up pieces of furniture and actually getting to see the construction and a feel sort of for the more original color, um, especially if it hasn't faded quite as much as what's on the outside. And actually, this idea of the original color and cut of wood is something that I wanted to chat a bit more about today and I've been thinking about recently. So it's 2021, which actually marks the 300th death of a sort of master wood carver called Grinling Gibbons. Uh, he was Dutch, but he worked in England at the end of the 17th century, kind of turn of the 18th century. And Gibbons was incredibly skilled at what he did and his extraordinarily fine work soon came to the attention of King William III and he became known as the King's Carver and the monarch commissioned him to create exuberant carvings at Kensington Palace and Hampton Court and you can still see some of those there today. I don't know if any of you have been to the carved room at Petworth House, um, but it's full of these wonderful carved frames and pieces of wood uh, of different shapes. So from musical instruments uh, like violins to intricate swags and flowers to animals, even including lobsters, all made out of wood. And what sort of really makes the room pop um, and what Gibbons does so well is his choice of wood. So he carves in lime wood, which is a really soft wood, and it's very suitable for kind of creating this depth and illusion of three-dimensionality. And he carves all of the pieces individually, and then he essentially pins them together and sets them onto oak paneling in, in this room. So the oak, when it would have been first cut, would have originally been really golden in colour, and the lime wood would have been very silver in colour. So just thinking about the colours that these woods, these kind of carved wood pieces would have had together, and what was intended by Gibbons, I think is just amazing. But of course, sadly, today, it's not the same colour wood oxidises. But that materiality offered by wood, I think, is something that just really continuously draws me to it as a material. 
That's such a really beautiful vision, actually, Caroline, of this wood changing over time and actually the kind of the mutability and the changeability of the materials that we're talking about is really fascinating. Um, it also really fascinates me that we think about wood as this material of the objects that fill our homes. So our tables and our chairs and our bookcases and our desks. And as you say, Caroline, that can decorate and beautify our homes as well. But wood could also make miniature worlds and miniature homes. So this is the case, perhaps most obviously, with dolls' houses, where stone and brick and mortar are transmuted into wooden buildings, and that wood is made to look like that brick and mortar. So again, it's these kind of visual effects that we're creating through wood. But this can also be the case with things like boxes. So if you've ever been to an antiques market, I'm sure that you will have seen the vast numbers of antique sewing or writing or painting or just generic boxes that are scattered over the stools. And it's always really struck me now that we see these objects as quite passive containers, but that to their original owners, they might have contained their whole worlds, really resonated with their emotional selves and their identities. So for domestic servants in the 18th century, for example, your box might have been your only private space, which you could decorate and fill with things that really reflected your selfhood, your identity. While your room, your domestic space, that we might more automatically think you could personalize, was left quite bare. So while the doll's house is literally this microcosmic house, boxes could be shrunken down worlds for their owners as well. And we imbue boxes like Jane Austen's writing slope with this intense deified meaning that seems out of scale with this little wooden box. But for many people, these boxes genuinely did hold such emotive and personal power. I'm really interested in what you're saying Serena about wood and identity here and my example this week is related to the 18th century actor and playwright David Garrick. So Garrick is perhaps no longer a household name as he would have been in the 18th century but during his own lifetime he was a major celebrity both on and off the stage. And he was particularly renowned for his performances of Shakespeare. Uh, the artist Sir Joshua Reynolds, for example, famously said that it took him several days to recover from Garrick's performance of Hamlet because it was just so powerful. So Garrick was a huge champion of Shakespeare. And perhaps along with the blue stocking Elizabeth Montague, who wrote a really important uh, and well-known essay on the Bard, Garrick is probably the reason that we still know and love Shakespeare's plays today, which has sort of fallen out of fashion until he took up their cause. But he wasn't just interested in the plays themselves, but also in the objects that had been maybe owned by Shakespeare or possibly associated with him in some way. And among these, there were many examples made from wood, notably a cup or a kind of goblet, uh, supposedly made from a mulberry tree planted by Shakespeare and under which he was meant to have had these brilliant ideas and creative inspiration. And this cup was actually used by Garrick. It was collected by him and used in 1769 when he held a huge festival in Shakespeare's hometown of Stratford-upon-Avon sort of pinnacle moment of which was Garrick reciting some poetry and drinking from this cup. 
And this wasn't the only wooden Shakespeare-related item that he owned. So the diarist and courtier Mary Hamilton visited Garrick's house in the 1780s, and she later recorded in her diary seeing a chair made out of oak that had Shakespeare's head carved into it by the artist William Hogarth, and which was supposedly made from a tree under which Shakespeare had shot a deer during a hunt. So while these links might seem tenuous to us today, for Garrick, Wood provided a really sort of tangible connection to a man in history with whom he was trying to align himself and his art. And it's a sort of seemingly alive material that had been in proximity to Shakespeare and then later in proximity to Garrick. And it creates a sort of a line of inheritance between the two of them. That's so interesting, Maddie. And the idea also that kind of wood is a living material as well, I think sets it apart from some of the other kinds of materials that we've spoken about on the podcast. And it was such a delight this week to talk to um, Elise about furniture and wood. I think Maddie mentioned uh, that ceramics were perhaps one of the most ubiquitous of the materials that we've been talking about in this series. But I think wood gives it a serious run for its money. And as Serena mentioned, so many furnishings that we encounter in our everyday lives are wooden objects. And as someone finalising my book, slightly painfully at the moment, I spend most of my days sat at the big piece of wood that is my desk. Yet despite being this very everyday material, wood has also been crafted into some of the most beautiful objects. Whether polished mahogany surfaces, on tables or chests of drawers, or inlaid marquetry, which uses woods of different colours and kinds in complex visual display. So the treatment of wood and the appearances of wood from this period are something that really marries beauty with practicality. And this duality is something that really comes through in our talk with Elise, who picks some wonderful objects that are both highly practical and highly beautiful. excited to welcome Elise Perry England, who is Associate Curator of American Decorative Arts at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, where she oversees the 17th to early 19th century furniture collection. She has organised exhibitions on topics such as decorative arts from Connecticut, poetry and art and the Civil War, and she has published scholarship on things like Japan furniture, federal era cabinet makers and folk art. And today we're actually going to be talking to Elise about all things wood. Uh, Elise and I actually first met when we were both on research fellowships at the Winterthur Museum in Delaware, where Elise was working on a really fascinating project on Japan furniture. And so she was the first person that I thought of for the wood episode. So welcome, Elise. Well, thank you. Thank you, Fran and Serena. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and to talk about my favorite subject, which is furniture. So, Elise, perhaps we could actually start with the larger narrative surrounding the history of furniture, because furniture is such a, a kind of quotidian part of our lives, and it's often very easy to overlook you know, the chairs that we sit on and the tables that we eat off of. But of course, furniture can be about so much more than just ubiquitous function. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you think furniture is important and what drew you to it. And I always frame this question as, why would a middle-aged woman like myself devote herself to the study of furniture for the rest of her life? Um, and I think there's a lot of good reasons. 
Um, and I think for that very reason that it's something that sits, you know, usually right in front of us. And it's often the first type of art form that people are introduced to, but you know, it's unknowingly in a lot of respects. But the thing that I think is really important um, to understanding and appreciating furniture is really the problem solving and engineering inherent in all furniture that in order for this piece to exist, there was clearly some, you know, thought and brainstorming about, you know, the type of function, yes, the activities that this would have to support, but also the sheer physics and geometry, you know, that, that are implemented in the creation of the object in order for it to do that. So I think if, you know, if you like math or you, you are afraid of it, um, either way, you should, you know, respect furniture. But I also think that there's a lot of other really wonderful narratives that accompany furniture and often they are truly emblems of cultural crossroads. Um, you know, furniture often represents, you know, these periods of migration where both ideas and even people are crossing borders, really show this explosion of new ideas and, and approaches um, to, you know, lifestyles and also just in terms of craftsmanship. Some other things that also draw me to furniture happen to be related more towards the ecology, that the type of furniture that I'm you know, investing in is, is essentially early furniture, often made from wood. And um, the wood species are, are really something of great interest to me because um, it tells you a lot about the natural environment, perhaps surrounding the craftsmen as they're making choices to use locally available wood. Um, you know, in, in my part of New England, um, you know, we really have dense, you know, deciduous forests, you know, packed with lots of maples and, you know, yellow poplar. Um, so there, it's really wonderful to see how, you know, furniture makers around here were using, you know, some of those types of woods. But there was also the option, you know, for people to use things from abroad. Um, and often in the period I study in the 17th and 18th century, there's a prevalence of, of mahogany used. Um, and that's a lesson for all of us to study very carefully, too, because it was a very exploitative extraction of, you know, wood um, in the West Indies and Central America. That eventually caused you know irreparable ecological damage to those regions um, so i think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that and i think in this day for any pe person that's interested in ecology or you know concerned with recycling even furniture is a green business that um, buying antique antique furniture does not you know um, expand your carbon footprint so um, i think it's a really good thing to invest in and you know i encourage everybody to get out there and look for antique furniture to populate their houses and it's always so much cheaper as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, currently, yeah, some some areas, and, and that's where I think you need to just take a look and see what's in your price bracket. But there truly is mm -hmm. a design aesthetic for any person at any price point, and it's just a matter of you know uh, where your hunting begins. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Freya and I are probably already the converted. <laughs> Um, yeah. I love these connections between the environment and also making and also, you know, the people and the, well, again, I guess, both the environment that it, that it impacts and that furniture, you know, we think of it as being this thing that's all around of us and is just sort of a, well, a ubiquitous part of our day-to-day -day lives, but actually it has so much um, potential for, for impact in so many different ways. I wonder if, as a sort of a follow-up to this, there's anything that drew you particularly to 17th and 18th century furniture, if there's anything about that period especially that um, enticed you? Absolutely. I th there's so much to love about, you know, the, the period that I really focus in on is um, the 17th and 18th centuries. And because essentially there's such 
a departure from the prior generations of design and craftsmanship. And it happens in, in two different modices, at least, you know, especially in the Amer North American context. You know, what's really happening in this time period is that there's this breaking of the rectilinearity and the rigidity um, of prior forms. And there's really a flood of ideas and even design books circulating to really encourage, you know, this new creativity. And so what you see is, you know, elements like in the 17th century, there's this dramatic, you know, embodiment in, this, in the surfaces of pieces of case furniture and even, you know, uh, seating furniture, where they're using um, intense carved relief or veneering techniques um, to really create this theatrical, you know, surface on works. And then in the 18th century, we start to see these extremes in the form itself. Um, you know, largely there are people like Hogarth who play on this idea of, you know, the most beautiful curve and line, the ideal, you know, form. And, you know, those are embodied in a cabriole leg that starts to pop up on all seating furniture and um, even in case furniture on North American furniture. And there's also this levity and verticality that begins in this particular period that, you know, there's no piece that it doesn't have some height on it. And there's something about that, that it's just this uplifting moment, you know, this truly, you know, inspired um, period of time in, in craftsmanship and design. One of the other features is also this test of the materials that uh, the craftsmen are really becoming acquainted with, um, in particular, you know, the wood species that they're, they're working. And they're learning how to bring these materials to their structural limit. You know, they're, they're testing that integrity and also the inherent natural features of that particular wood species. Um, so, you know, these early forms and pieces, you really do have to look at, um, you know, the, the elements of the actual original tree that helped to enhance, you know, its particular design and beauty. So there's, there's just so many things I can, you know, speak of, but those are just a few that I can think of at this very moment. I love that kind of the, the experimental approach to furniture that you're describing, both in terms of form, um, surface, and then also uh, of the kind of that material literacy with the wood itself and kind of learning how that, that material behaves is really fascinating and how that then, I guess, corresponds with the formal and um, developments and the how the surfaces of the pieces are treated and stuff like that. It's completely, um, it is such a fascinating period in furniture history, I completely agree. Something I've been thinking about a lot recently as a kind of historian of the home is this idea that kind of domesticity is kind of omnipresent in our lives at the moment. And the pandemic quarantines have brought this greater awareness to our home setting and the furniture and objects that we have within them. So what has furniture kind of given you a greater appreciation of at this time? <laughs> Isn't it so funny that we're all reassessing our homes and what we love and we don't love about our furniture? I can't tell you the number of times I've, I've looked around and sent something to our basement just because I can't stand looking at it anymore. <laughs> um, but it's, it's interesting, especially now, because I think, you know, many of us live in tight quarters. You know, maybe you live in an urban setting or in general, you just, you know, have small, you know, graduate style living right now. But it's, it's one of those moments where I think versatility is really important for us to consider that and think about, you know, in these spaces we live in, you know, how are the furniture forms we live with providing that type of, of you know, um, omni-service in, in general, just what else are they doing for you besides being that one piece? 
And um, so in our collection, in the Metropolitan's collection, we have really unusual forms, some of which are things like chair tables where you have um, a big high back you know, chair that if you flip the top down, it becomes a table. You also have lots of other furniture forms and tables that may have swing legs or, you know, with gate legs. Sometimes they can have expanded surfaces. And those are the types of things I know that in the first week of, of um, the pandemic shutdowns, both, you know, my family and I were, were searching around for, for different types of tables like this in order to put out extra computer screens or make new workstations. So that versatility became incredibly important, just like it would have been in the early period where they were looking to have expanded seating when they had, you know, guests or when they were, you know, preparing food or when they were, you know, um, setting out other, you know, activities. So I think that's really important to us now as it was in the early period. And the other piece too that I think all of us are highly aware of now is the ergonomics, that the more time we're spending in these uncomfortable desk chairs, um, or you keep retreating to your couch, but it doesn't have a, you know, a surface to, you know, to set your computer on. I think there's a lot of that discussion happening in everyone's household. And I, I certainly stop and think about the contours on the backs of chairs, the types of upholstery and the tufting and the cushion on, you know, anything I sit on, seat shapes, you know, where, and especially I think as women, we, we prefer for a different type of seat than men do sometimes. And I think that, you know, the seat shape definitely accommodates, you know, a lot of comfort and, um, you know, body types, as well as the, the height of certain seating furniture that, you know, I, I suggest you do it right now. You get up and you go find a bar stool in your house and you sit on that and then you go to another chair and then you go to the couch and notice the position at which your, your knees, you know, start to bend um, and what comfort that provides you and what you prefer. Um, so I think that there's a lot of pieces in the Metropolitan's collection that I have always had respect for, but even more so now in, in terms of that, both versi versatility and also the, the ergonomics. Two, I can think of immediately in terms of versatility, the ultimate piece in the early furniture collection um, in the American wing at the Metropolitan Museum um, is truly, there's a shaker swivel chair um, that has a, a wonderful back to it that only comes up to the middle of your back so you can't really slouch or lean back in it, um, but it pivots so that you can get from one workstation to the next. And I would love to have that at my desk right now. But in terms of the chair that might be better suited to, to what I do right now, sitting in one position for long you know, extended periods during the day, there's another chair that was made by a Philadelphia maker named Armit around from the 1740s, but it's a roundabout chair. So it has a wonderful curved back um, and the seat itself, your legs basically fall over the sides of it versus over just one single sided. So it comes to a point in between your legs and that, the comfort of that chair must've been wonderful. Um, and I think of having something like that in my household right now would have you know, just been revolutionary and, and provided a lot of you know, extra productivity hours for me. The, uh, the Ikea office chairs that we're probably all used to all you know, taking a diamond chair and trying to use that. Yeah. Right. yeah, I'm at my kitchen table and I'm suddenly looking very longingly at Serena's high-backed kind of proper desk seat. <laughs> <laughs> what you say about, um, you know, us all sort of turning towards how we can turn our houses into better workspaces as well, I think really chimes with so many people. And um, the first thing that I did as soon as lockdown happened was I gave myself a proper home office and redecorated <laughs> it all and tried to, you know, change the furniture so that it was more of a, a haven in my home where I could work. Uh, and furniture was so, so central to that. 
So I know that Freya and I will be dying to know this, um, and I'm sure that our listeners will be too. Is there anything in particular that you're currently working on? Um, or do you have an exhibition coming up that you'd like to talk about? What's really sort of taking your, your focus for your attention at the moment? Yeah, so there's, there's been a lot of projects lately, especially now that we have this time at home to, you know, really think and, and delve into projects that we might not have been able to concentrate on. And one of which is actually a, a reinstallation of, of early American furniture um, that would take place um, in 2024 in, in time for the American Wings uh, centennial celebration. So that's one. And I am looking at all the things that I just discussed with you, um, you know, all these factors of ergonomics and versatility and, you know, even the ecology, these are all factors that will play in to some of the discussions that we'll have. But one of the other projects that's very close to my heart um, that Freya and I, um, you know, had met on originally was um, a project on what's called Japan furniture. And this is something the term itself is a bit misleading, but it's, it's essentially a term that derives from furniture with finishes that were inspired by, inspired by Asian lacquer. And um, so this was something that was taking place, you know, in this early period, you know, from the 16th century to up to the, the um, 19th century. There are these finishes that were being produced because initially Asian lacquer was so hard to come by in Europe and even more so in the colonies. And eventually what happened was the local guilds, you know, in Europe started to experiment with different methodologies of, of producing something that was comparable. And again, opting for materials that might have been locally available or accessible to them, um, you know, at the time. And so it's a wonderful period of time in which there's this transmission of traditions into, of course, the North American colonies. And so I'm looking more specifically at what happened in Boston, Massachusetts um, at this time and links back to obviously, um, you know, the guilds in both England, even Holland for that matter. And then on top of that, we're also looking at the elements, um, you know, other design sources, both Asian and European that really came together and blended into this really new type of, you know, um, artistic phenomena. And on top of that, Looking at that problem solving again, you know, when people have a need for something and they truly cannot produce, reproduce, first, they couldn't reproduce the actual plant itself. It wouldn't grow in more moderate climates, both in Europe and the North American colonies. And so they had a problem ahead of them, which was to find something that would create as lustrous and as durable a um, varnish and lacquer as what they were seeing in the Asian um, materials. And on top of that, too, the sort of alchemy that goes along with that, you know, that the craftsmen were really coming up with interesting hybrids. And um, it's not carbon copy in the colonies. So that's the amazing part is we're really looking at the, the differences and some of those, you know, traits that are left behind, you know, from the European parent. But um, ultimately, Boston produces something that's really something of its own and um, very reflective of the time period itself. Mm. That's really fascinating because, so I have worked a little bit on Japaning as a craft activity. So, you know, when you're using um, sort of layers of paper and varnish to, to mimic the look of, of Japan furniture. And it's so fascinating to hear that so many of the sort of the, the issues with trying to mimic this look actually feed back to the, the thing that that's trying to mimic as well. There's this sort of longer thread of mimicry running through it all. 
Well, and that's the amazing part too, that the the true Asian imperial lacquers, you know, literally had, they could have hundred layers or more. Mm -hmm. And each one of those layers was carefully, you know, set. It took hours to dry, sanded down, you know, and then the next one went on. And so it would take months, you know, even possibly more than that to create these pieces. And so obviously there's that element of economy of time that by the time, you know, some of the Europeans get keen to this, they realize, well, we don't have the material plus we can make something, you know, similar, but we also have a really eager public that wants us. And they were doing that in every other, you know, industry at the time. So whether it's ceramics, textiles, and, but I think what's interesting is truly, you know, that, you know, what is being assimilated and what is being fashioned into something, um, you know, that they know of. And so some of the work that we've done is to look at, you know, some of those sources, like where, where are these two, you know, cultures, basically, what are they both contributing? And so it's, it's a wonderful, you know, case study of hybridization and, you know, just this moment where, um, you know, there's a great deal of science as well as, you know, just the commercial world and the transatlantic trade, you know, that feels into it. Um, so there's wonderful stories that way. But the pieces themselves, too, are so vivid that they're, you know, the scenes themselves, you know, there can be hunting scenes, there can be, you know, fantastical animals. And there's wonderful narrative in all of these pieces. So if you get a chance to look at them, they're really captivating and they're really hard to forget. You know, they're just absolutely extraordinary um, works of art. And I've had the chance to look at these on a scientific level as well. And when you look at those um, cross sections, sometimes when you take you know, teeny tiny paint samples from each one of these pieces, what you see is this wonderful layer cake, you know, of preparation. Mm -hmm. And so there's this incredible diligence that the craftsmen had, you know, even in the European versions of, of lacquer, where they're truly preparing surfaces, they're priming them, they're putting, you know, bowls on them, they're putting, you know, gilding, they're doing pen work on top of all of this. You know, there's really a thoughtfulness um, to the way that they're creating these surfaces. So, you know, a lot of people will say it's just an imitation of lacquer, but it truly shows that there was a lot of time and thought invested into it. And it's, it's really a tradition of its own in some ways. Yeah, and that notion of how kind of imitation or objects that have imitation as part of their kind of qualities or histories often get kind of dismissed. So it's so nice to hear you kind of pay that kind of careful and deep attention to those objects, even by looking at them at the microscopic scale, but also thinking about just the amount of time that it took to treat the materials in that way. So is that project kind of leading towards an exhibition or a publication? What are you, where are you kind of going with it? I know you're working with a couple of other people as well, aren't you? Yes, exactly. So there's, there's partners in all of us that um, I'm working with two other co-curators, both Tara Cedarholm and um, Christine Thompson, who are wonderful scholars on the subject and have also looked at those connections between both Europe and the North American colonies. And um, yes, we, we are producing a book and we're also turning this into an exhibition and we're scheduled currently for um, an exhibition in 2023 at the, the Metropolitan Museum. You know, but as we're sitting with the pandemic right now, um, there may be some adjustments to schedule, so stay tuned. But currently that's our plan. Oh, well, everyone will have to look out for that then um, in the future. Absolutely. I think that this episode is going to leave our listeners really itching to come and see the objects or if they can't actually physically come and see them at the moment, then to find some way of accessing them. So. 
what piece of American furniture must every visitor see if they're traveling to the Met, whether that's uh, virtually or in person? Well, there's so many, <laughs> but I will tell you, I fall in love with a different American furniture every day. And today I have to say that I, I'm truly in love with a New York card table. This piece that was made, you know, roughly around the 1760s in New York. And the reason I'm interested in this piece is because it's unusual in that it has three tops. So it has different playing surfaces. You can fold the card table down and push it against a wall and save it for later, or you can open it up to one of the two playing surfaces. So there's a card surface with a nice, like beautiful mahogany you know, piece of wood, but there's also another top which has a backgammon and chessboard on it. And what this says about the piece is that the person who owned this piece was, a, was seriously fun. You know, they, they were probably a bit of a gambler. And on top of that, it's, it's just a fabulous piece because it has a lot of ingenuity in it as well that um, you can see, you know, the, the three tops are there, but in the back of it, it has an adjustable leg with a lever that will allow you to, um, you, know, you know, engage whichever top you're, you're ready for at the time. So I love that feature that it's a very playful piece in terms of its function, but it's truly, you know, an A plus in, in its form and its design and particularly speaks to New York craftsmanship at this time. You know, it's got a beautiful serpentine front um, with, you know, a gadrooned, uh, you know, border on, on its apron. And also those beautiful cabriole legs I spoke about earlier, you know, that pop up on furniture from this period. And what I love most about these is that that tension in the curve, it almost looks like a demi-plie. You know, if somebody was, was about to bounce up in the air um, it's just got that levity and verticality um, that I love so much about 18th century pieces. And to boot, it's, it has wonderful carving on the knees that you really, truly just have to sit and take in all the different recesses and um, veining and, you know, shell forms in them um, because they're just extraordinary and very naturalistic, which also speaks to the, the period and, um, you know, the interest that they had and um, plant life and, you know, flora and fauna all around them. Um, it's, it's really something that 18th century carvers capitalized on and, and championed in that, that period. It's so wonderful uh, listening to you talk about furniture. It's kind of give, make, giving me a whole new kind of perspective on, on these objects. And I'll be looking much more closely uh, at furniture going forward, both in my own home and uh, when I go to museums and galleries. Hopefully, maybe I'll get to the Met for your exhibition. Uh, we, can, we can all hope, can't we? Um, for our listeners, we will be sharing an image of Elisa's favourite object on our Instagram, so you can find it there. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Elise. It's been um, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And likewise, it was so wonderful to talk to you guys. And I think that that's the business I'm in is making converts, you know, people that are interested in furniture. And it, it's always a very tough subject to go into because not many people are familiar or they're intimidated by it, but it's, it's a wonderful area of study. And I encourage everybody to get to know the furniture in their own home or, you know, furniture outside. And, um, you know, please come visit the Met if you have a chance or go online and take a look at our, our collection.
don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram and to subscribe.